So seeing how it is, I guess, where it lands, the proclamation that, uh, that Jesus brings great news of great joy and real peace. I wonder if you've ever thought the question, where do you find peace? Years ago, um, our second, our second oldest, so we've got three kids, and our middle child was learning to ride a bike, and our oldest child, who'd already sort of mastered the skill, was trying to help him along. And I remember as he was kind of getting the hang of it and starting to make a few pedals and, and sort of keeping in a straight line for a while, I just remember his older brother running after him going, yes, Sebi, you're a champion, you're doing it. And I thought that was, it was so cute to see him encouraging him in that way. And as he did that, I thought, yeah, he's kind of good. Like, he's, he was actually only like two and he was getting the hang of riding a bike. And that's the thing, like, maybe you'd be like Olympic level or something like that. Or <laughs> if, you, if you have kids, you'll know when they show any small amount of talent for anything, your mind runs wild with what the possibilities could be. Like, if they start reading a book, you're like, oh, yeah, they might be into philosophy or writing. Or they get into a bit of music, you're like, of course, they're going to be a maestro. It's never the case, of course, when they're playing in the toilet that you're like, oh, there might be a toilet cleaner. Or like it only, it's only kind of upwardly mobile fantasies that you sort of you know, engage in. But even as I was thinking about you know, sort of the future and, and what they would be good at, part of me thought, gosh, it'd be great if they're an incredible success at something. But then the thought also occurred to me of like, but sometimes that can be quite difficult, can't it? It can be the case sometimes that you know, the, the chasing after success is actually more satisfying than the getting of it. There was a movie years ago uh, called Chariots of Fire. You may have heard of it. Um, but in that movie, there are two characters, and they're talking about a race coming up. I think it's a 100-meter final. And one of them said, I'm not afraid of losing. I'm afraid of winning. And the whole theme in the movie was the concern that this person, his whole life was building up to one climactic point, and he was very close to attaining it, and his deepest fear was that after striving after it for so long, he would get it, and it wouldn't be what he hoped. That it would be the thing that his life had hung upon, and that the moment that he achieved it, he was worried that it may actually be the case that it disappointed. One philosopher said, the loneliest moment in life is when you achieve the thing that you thought would bring you the most meaning, and it fails you. What are you looking for when you're looking for peace? A house, a partner, a job, a career? The truth of the Christmas story is that there are so many things in this world that even when we get them, somehow leave us longing for more. And yet Jesus brings real peace. And that's what the Christmas story is about. And the account that Gav walked us through was, a, was an account in the book of Luke. The, the book of Luke is a historical account of Jesus' life and teachings and ministry, and it's an orderly account. From the opening sentence of this book, we know that it was written to a Greek guy called Theophilus, and that he probably, uh, in order to show him the account that Jesus was accurate, that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and God walking among us. And the first chapter reveals that Israel, as a group of people, were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a king. They were waiting for someone to come to make things complete. Roman occupation was the thing that they thought they needed rescue from. And they thought this Messiah was going to come and get rid of the Romans and right all the wrongs and bring genuine and lasting peace. They were longing for peace. And they expected that the Messiah would rule and reign over the earth and bring peace to God's people. But as we begin chapter 2, we start to see things roll out in an unexpected way. The circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, the one that they claim was the Messiah, this king that they'd been waiting for, 
were unusual to say the least. It was a humble, almost lonely event. See, while this might not have been the birth that the Jewish people expected, it shows that even from birth, that the Messiah suffered along with his people. That he was someone who was different. And if deliverance would come, it would come from one who suffered among them. It wasn't going to be a rich or powerful person, but someone who was just like the rest of Israel. So we start at Luke chapter 2 in sentences 1 to 2. Look at what it says here. It will come up on the screen for you. In those days went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke tells us this with details about names and places to let us know that this is a historical account. This isn't a mythology. We're not talking about Middle Earth or Hogwarts, although there is a Quirinius in there for all the... Yeah, anyway, it's for the two people who are into that. But Luke does this again and again to assure that these events are easy to investigate. If you want to write a mythology, you don't include clear dates or times because they can be cross-checked and cross-examined. Luke is writing this account so that we might know this is history. And he means it to be understood as history. But he also does it for another reason. He's drawing a comparison between two kings and the power that they have to bring peace. The first king mentioned is Caesar Augustus. He was a Roman emperor and he reigned from January 16, 27 BC to August 19 and 14 AD. And at birth he was named Gaius Octavius Thurinius. Can't imagine why he changed his name. And he became the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Now, when Julius Caesar died, Octavius became emperor and became a Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius or Octavian Caesar for short. Again, I can't imagine why you'd bother shortening that. But anyway, uh, and he was, he was known for bringing the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that he brought order to all the land, uh, and it was an incredible accomplishment. And because of all this, he gave himself the name Augustus. So he gave himself a nickname. Now, this is very un-Australian, isn't it? I don't know if you had a nickname, but in high school, there was, there was only two Jeremys in my year group, and because that was too much work for everyone to work out, we had to have a nickname to distinguish the two of us. And, uh, and so I sort of, by various means, managed to get the name Handsome Jay, <laughs> sort of put a word in for myself, which obviously meant that the other one had to become Dirty Jay. And so I was, I was pretty chuffed about how the results came out with that. But it's reasonably un-Australian to give yourself a nickname. But I guess when you conquer the known world, that's one of the things that you actually get to do. And so <laughs> Caesar Augustus called himself, uh, uh, sorry, called himself Augustus, which is a religious title meaning majesty or illustrious one. So again, he's really putting tickets on himself. But it also had divine connotations. Uh, he also described himself as Emperor Caesar, son of God. He described himself as the firstborn head. These are all names that become associated with the historical person of Jesus. During his reign, he began requiring Roman citizens to pay homage not only to him through taxation, but also pledging their allegiance to him by saying, Caesar is Lord. Early Christians were known for declaring, Jesus is Lord. Luke is setting up for us a a clash of kings and of kingdoms here. We're told that Caesar has called for a census Meaning that the, and it says here the whole world, which just meant Rome. It's kind of like in the States when you have the World Series for baseball, but only America can play. <laughs> but here's, we're told the whole world, which is the Roman Empire, uh, was called to a census, so they had to go to their hometown in order to be counted. Now, this was massive for the Jewish people because it, it, it really rubbed in their face the fact that they were not in charge of their own destiny. 
As one author writes, it will come up on the screen for you. It says, For the Jews, this census was more than an irritation. It was an assault on their ancestral rights and their holy land, which was now degraded to a mere province of the vast Roman Empire. The fact that Jesus' birth was linked to the taking of the census perhaps also contributed to the view that he might be the expected Messiah, that precisely in Israel's darkest hour, God would send a deliverer. The story is meant to show that even in this dark hour for God's people, he is at work, that he's sending his Messiah. And so we read on in the story, as Gav read to us before, from Luke 2, 3 to 5, we read this, All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. In the Bible, in the first centuries before uh, um, Micah, in Micah 5.2, was promised that God's king, the Messiah, would be the true king and he'd be born in Bethlehem. And so it's in, this detail of the story is important that they were in this very town when it happened. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was about 130 kilometers, so that's a fair journey to cover. But both towns were quite small and probably less than 100 people lived in each of them. And God's king was not going to enter the world in flashy circumstances. This is a small backwater town that he's heading to. Though not officially married, a Jewish culture considered betrothed couples to be married in every way except for the physical union. And so Mary traveled with Joseph. And this is where the story starts to get interesting. In Luke 2, 6-7, we read this. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. Now, many of the stories, if you've seen like a Christmas movie depicting this story, many of them depict it as this, this rush. Mary is on the, like almost like a modern story of like, you know, the woman in the cab whose childbirth just rushes on suddenly. Um, but Mary's going into labor on the donkey and Joseph is panicking, running around town, knocking on doors, trying to see if there's somewhere where he can get in. And everywhere is closed, so he just parks his wife in an animal stable and they have the birth there. And then the animals kind of nuzzle their noses against little baby Jesus. Now these details probably largely come from texts outside the Bible and have kind of been constructed together. But it's unlikely that that's how this unfolded. The Bible, uh, the, uh, looking at just what we have in Luke's Gospel and what we know of the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was probably a bit more like this. Based on what Luke writes... It seems likely that Joseph left Nazareth with plenty of time. They actually knew how long it took to have babies back then as well. And so he, he allowed plenty of time to get there knowing that it's a long journey. So it's unlikely they were there and rushed and, and trying to find somewhere in a panic. The text says that while they were there, the time came for Mary to have birth, indicating that they'd probably been there for a few days before this actually happened. Now, it, it was a shame on a culture, and so hospitality to relatives or even non-relatives was expected. So it's unlikely that they would have got to their hometown and not had relatives that they could stay with. And, and again, in a shame on a culture, you make room for people in your place. And so this comes then to the inn. Modern readers of this text believe that Mary gave birth in a stable out the back, kind of behind an inn, like a, you know, a, a Formula One motel or something like that. But Joseph would have tried to stay with relatives, and the text seems to indicate that Joseph and Mary obtain a room in the inn, Although the word here in the Greek is not the one usually used for an inn where you would stay at, uh, but what it most likely means is guest room. And so most houses uh, would have had sort of a, a, an upper room and a lower room. There would have been a single room house. 
uh, and then one lower and one higher. And the upper room portion was where the family would live and eat and sleep, and the lower part was where the animals would stay at night. And so what most likely happens is that they were staying in a place, a relative's place, the animals were cleared out, and they were given the downstairs room to stay in. Rather than being put in sort of a barnyard thing out the back in a bundle of hay or whatever it is, still great to have hay though, good <laughs> reminder. But it's probably not the chaotic scene that's depicted in so many movies, including The Star, which we'll be watching next week. So join us for that. <clears throat> but it seems here as well that the birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness and insignificance and the great king, Caesar, the greatest kingdom in the world at the time. And the point of this text is contrast. On one hand, you have Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and then you have Jesus born in a little backwater town with almost nobody paying attention. And yet his life and ministry was eventually to overthrow the empire of Rome. Unbelievable. And look at what it says as the story carries on in Luke 2, 8 to 14. In the same region where the shepherds were out in the field, keeping watch of their flock by night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. We are told just near Bethlehem, shepherds were out in the field. The presence of shepherds around Bethlehem indicates that these events took place in late September. These events couldn't have been in December, as traditionally thought, Sorry, sorry to bring down the Christmas vibe and all, but it is just a date. Uh, but it's likely September uh, because um, in December, since flocks really weren't kept outside in the winter, so this is, you know, makes it a little bit tricky. But the shepherds were probably teens tending sheep. And it was also the case, you know, that shepherds were considered to be really of the lowest caste for Jewish people. Their work sort of made them ceremonial unclean. They were seen as kind of really almost the bottom rung. And so here we see that God is working in unusual ways. He's not going to the high and mighty and powerful. He's going to common shepherd boys. And the angel speaks to them and says, do not be afraid. Now, every, in every account in the Gospels, when an angel confronts a person, they start by saying, do not be afraid. Now, what that probably tells you is that many of the depictions we've seen of angels as chubby little babies with wings is probably not what the Bible is talking about. If the first thing you have to say to people when you meet them is, don't be afraid, presumably you look reasonably frightening or intimidating. And of course, as we read this story, you might think, well, look, of course, like back in those days, everyone believed in angels and all that kind of stuff and whatnot. Um, and C.S. Lewis calls this in some ways chronological snobbery, the belief that we as modern scientific skeptical people are the ones who've got it all right, and back then people just believed anything. But it seems that the way that the text is written is that this was not something that happened every day or that people thought happened every day. The fact that the angel has to say to them, do not be afraid, indicates that this was not something that they're expecting, that this was an incredible thing, and they are terrified. And so in 10 and 11, he goes on to say this, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. The angel says, don't be afraid, I haven't come to destroy you, instead I bring you good news. Today, Jesus is born, this Messiah that everyone's been waiting for, and he's going to bring good news of great joy. Good news in the ancient world, this phrase was something that was associated with kings. When the king lost, he sent generals throughout his cities 
to warn them that the enemy had won and that they needed to prepare for battle. If they're on the front lines and they were losing, a messenger would go out sending basically a message of panic. However, the opposite was true. When the king won, he would send messages, regular people to tell good news that the battle has won. They went to these towns not to say, get ready to fight, but to say, you don't have to worry about fighting. The battle has already been won. It's sorted. It's over. And they would bring this good news throughout all the land. Now here, the angels are saying that it's good news that Jesus is born. It says that Jesus is going to be Savior, Christ, and Lord. I don't know if you noticed, but Caesar had taken all three terms to himself. He claimed to be a Savior, Christ, and Lord. And yet here, the same claim is being made of Jesus. So what makes Jesus so special? Well, far from bringing the peace of Rome, which brought a certain amount of peace from war and prosperity, Jesus brings true and lasting peace. Look at what it says in the final verses of this section. It says, And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus brings peace. The good news he brings is that we can have peace with God. In the Bible, when it talks about sin, it's not the naughty stuff we do. It's a relational word. That all of us is broken relationship with God. And Jesus coming to earth to be with us, to die for our sin and to bring us back to God, was God making peace with us, offering peace to us. See, when there's a break in relationship, things are uncomfortable. The reason we feel incomplete is not because we don't have enough stuff. The reason we feel incomplete is not because we don't have enough people in our lives. The reason we feel incomplete is not because we don't have enough success in career or sport. The reason we feel incomplete is because without God, we are incomplete. Augustine uh, once wrote this, God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until we find rest in thee. The problem so often is, that we don't think too much about it. We think something in this life will satisfy us or make us feel complete. But until that relational breach with God is repaired, we will always feel incomplete. You can think about it this way. For my wife, Mel and I, we've never actually had a disagreement or a fight, so I'm just, I'm just going off what other people talk about as their experience. Uh, but I've heard that when couples fight, if they don't resolve it, there's just a sense of unease in the relationship. Just even when you're at work, there's like a, a pit in the bottom of your stomach that as you think about it, you're like, oh, that's right, there's kind of this breach in relationship. There's just an unsettledness. I feel like if you were to expand that out for a metaphor of, of our relationship with God, it is the case that we are at unease until we find peace with God. This is what's so extraordinary about the message of Christmas. It's the message that Jesus came to bridge that gap and bring peace between us and God. And so that's what we celebrate at Christmas And that's what we're going to continue to celebrate here this afternoon. I'm going to pray. Father, we praise you that you are a good and everlasting God. We thank you that you sent Jesus, the one who brings great news, good news of great joy, and the one who has bridged the gap between us and you. And Father, we just pray that at Christmas time, we would remember the true message of Christmas, that it's all about Jesus and what he has done to bring us back to you. And Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen.